The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. It's a great honor for me to introduce my friend, a lecturer, an author, a guide, and most of all, a tell-meet of the Master. His name is Ray Vanderland. Ray is married to Esther. They have four children, of which he's very proud. He's got 16 grandchildren, of which he's very, very proud. He lives in Holland, Michigan, and on occasion when he's home, he teaches at Holland Christian. Ray is the, uh, has led groups in actual as well as video uh, trips through the Holy Land. He's done extensive work through Focus on the Family. In the words of a famous journalist, he's going to tell us the rest of the story. So this morning, Ray is going to lead us through the road to the cross. Ray, would you come so that we can, as a group, pray for you? Father, we bless you for being the God that loves us and always provides for us. We bless you for the wonderful thing you've done this weekend through your servant, Ray. You've used him in a powerful way for our benefit. And we praise you for that wonderful blessing. We pray that you would continue to be with him as he travels. And please return him home safely. Our Father, we pray for us that on the morrow and even this day, when we leave this place, we will be different people because we've had another encounter with your word. Father, uh, use Ray. Continue to use Ray uh, and give him health. In the name of our Messiah. Jesus. Amen. 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 Good morning. Thank you, Jim. That was very generous. It's been my privilege to be here. I realize that not all of you were at the seminar this weekend, but I want to thank the TBC community. You were most gracious. Your hospitality was wonderful. You shared the facility with us without cost. That was very special, and it's unusual honor for me to be part of your worship service. I always take that seriously when I'm invited into a community that I'm not part of normally, that you would want to worship and have me be part of that worship. So thank you so much. For those who were at the seminar, I had a great time this weekend, and I go back inspired about what God is doing in this part of his world, that there is a community of people with a real passion for his book and his son and for making a difference in this broken world that we live in. So I bless God for that opportunity. Just an aside, but I must say it, I have a plane flight to catch at the end of this, so I'm not going to be able to stay around and talk and ask questions and answer questions. I feel badly about that, but I hope you understand. So thank you for being so kind. I would like to ask that you stand, if you would, as we've done in this uh, weekend. When Jewish people gather for a time of hearing God's word, they always make a commitment to the Lord to say, God, I'm all in. I'm I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to wrestle with what you say to me. I'm ready to try to do it as well. They use Deuteronomy 6, words called Shema. Jesus said those words are the greatest commandment. He would have, as a Jew, used them often too. So I think he used them, said them regularly as we've done all weekend. Let's just say the English together today and make our commitment to say, God, you're our God and we're all in. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Amen. Amen. Please sit down for my words. Have you noticed how much of this book is story? As much as 70% of what's in what we call the Bible is story. We hear them, the Christmas story, the Easter story, the Pentecost story. You can tell me all of those stories. Sometimes I think, as adults, we tend to think, well, stories are good for kids. So we put them in the Sunday school hour, and they learn the Bible stories. And we adults move on to the more meat of the word, the doctrines of Paul or the, the brilliance of the book of Hebrews. But story is the main frame, framework, if you will, of the Bible, not simply because God loves story, which he obviously does, but because of the way in which Eastern people or Hebrew people as Eastern people think. They prefer to think of truth or to describe truth, what they believe to be true, in the form of metaphor, word picture, or story. That is a common cultural system to think in those terms. So they would prefer to describe truth, even complicated truth, in a story. When Jesus was asked a profound question, he often responded with a simple story we call a parable. He didn't explain them at the end, he just left the story, and that was his way of speaking truth. That's very much how the people, the audience of the Bible, chose to do it. So I say to my students, for example, finish this sentence. Now, they're Western, like you, most of you are, and so they say things like, well, God is love, or God is holy, or God is eternal, or God is powerful, or God is mysterious. All true, all beautiful, I hope you believe them, but very Western. And I say to them, what pictures do you see when you say those words, holy and true and eternal? And they'll say, well, we don't see any pictures. The reason is those are abstract terms. They're truth, they're beautiful, they're worth knowing and learning, but they don't have any pictures. If I ask those same questions at a Jewish school in the Middle East, I get very different answers. Because when I say to them, God is, they'll say, oh, let's see, God is living bread. God is my shepherd. God is living water. God is shade in my desert. God has eagle's wings. Now, they can think the way we do. We can think the way they do. But they would prefer to describe God like this. That's their way of thinking. Because that's true, when you read your Bible, knowing that those are picture people, story people, you need to pay careful attention to the context of the story. Because the context of the story is not simply a setting for the story. It is the place that the metaphors, the word pictures, and the storylines come out of. And if you pick up on some of those ideas, you discover often the context can give you information that isn't as readily accessible I'm sorry, to those of us who are in a different context. So, for example, yesterday we noted in our seminar study that Jesus was put on the cross at the third hour and died at the ninth hour. And we asked, why do I need to know that? What difference does it make what time he died? You're telling me if he'd have been a half hour late, it wouldn't have worked? 
Or if he'd have hung there a half hour longer, it would have been extra? The answer is no, but the writer is communicating something because any Middle Eastern person, any Jewish person would tell you that God had ordained a sacrifice system and a sacrifice had to be made for the whole of the people at 9 o'clock in the morning and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So when Jesus died at those times, a Middle Easterner would say, oh, that's God's way of saying Jesus' death is for all. And it's done then in the metaphor of those little details. Now, I'd like to choose another example and ask the same question for a a bit of time today as the last session of the seminar, but I think maybe of general interest, I pray at least, for everyone. It's in the Gospel of Mark. In the crucifixion story, Mark says this, they led Jesus out to crucify him, They brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the head or the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which he refused. He did not drink it. My question to you, why do I need to know that? It's not explained. It's never mentioned again. There's no meaning put in it. Why would the writer want you to know that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, which he wouldn't drink. Now, to us, there is no meaning to that. I've heard people say, well, it was medicinal, it would have lessened his pain, and he was willing to bear the full brunt of his suffering. That may be true, but it isn't in the text. But if you had been in his world, I think you would have known exactly what Mark was communicating by his choice of that detail. Let me bring you there. There is a Jewish context to the crucifixion. He was crucified as the Lamb of God at the third hour and the ninth hour. There's also a Roman context. Jesus was arrested and turned over to the Roman authorities. The governor, Pilate, in Caesar's name, tried him had him paraded through the streets of Jerusalem, and then crucified him at a hill just outside of town. And the trial and the ones who executed the sentence, the authority behind his death was clearly Roman. So we not only need to pay attention to the Jewish context of the stories of Jesus, we also should ask, is there something in the Roman context that would help us to understand wine mixed with myrrh? Makes sense, because the Roman world was massive in Jesus' day, and Israel was a small frontier province on the eastern frontier where Jesus actually lived under the control of Rome. Something was happening in the Roman Empire about the time Jesus was born. They had moved from a country ruled by a senate to a country ruled by an emperor. And that was new, almost the time of Jesus' birth. The first emperor is the one he was born under, Caesar Augustus. But there's more. That emperor had begun to declare himself and people had begun to think of him as being the deified one the divine one, having the powers or at least the privileges of a divine being, not simply a human being. And so the world then, 
thought of Caesar, at least the Roman world thought of Caesar, not simply as this great man or this powerful man or our emperor. They thought of Caesar as the divine son of God. Now imagine that you lived in Rome and that you were an early believer and you knew that your emperor, you lived in one of these tenement houses, that your emperor called himself God. Some of you are Jewish, the big Jewish community in Rome. You had come to know Jesus when you went to Jerusalem for Pentecost, the feast, last year, and you heard about the Holy Spirit, and you heard about Jesus, and you decided to believe. Some of you are Roman Gentiles. You know nothing about the Jewish background, but you've heard, too, about this Jesus, and you've fallen in love with him. How do you explain to your neighbors that this Jesus whom you call Lord and God, whom you worship, was executed by your divine emperor as a terrorist. They're certainly going to want to know how in the world can you worship an executed criminal? How do you explain that his authority, Jesus that is, doesn't seem to overcome the power and the authority of divine... How do you explain that to the Roman who's not a believer. It's not going to be so simple or so easy. For us, it's quite simple because even those who don't necessarily believe often have a relative understanding of what Christianity is or should be. Well, let me bring you to that world. How did Caesar declare to the world that he was Lord and God? He did it in many ways. One was to mint coins that say divine Caesar on it. Here's one of Julius Caesar. Here's one of the the Caesar of Jesus' death, Tiberius Caesar. His coins always say the Son of God. But you can't mint coins. Not only isn't it legal, but you're lower class economically. You can't be minting coins that say Jesus is the Son of God on them. So you're not going to compete that way. Another way the Romans did it was to have statues. At the foot of the statue would be an inscription that says Caesar is Lord and God. But even without that, every Roman knew that that statue said Caesar is God because it has what's called the divine pose. The gods were often posed as nude to the waist, their robe thrown over the left arm, their right arm extended pointing, the wreath of deity on their head, their finger says, I will control and bring you into the future, their right foot is stepping forward to say, follow me, their left foot coming up off the ground says to a Roman, I'm rooted in the ancient gods and traditions of the past. So that statue says, Caesar is God, even if it doesn't have an inscription. But you can't carve statues either. You don't have the money for it. And besides, many of you are Jewish, and the Bible says you shall make no graven images. So you're not at a point yet where you're going to advertise Jesus with a big statue of him outside your house. So what do you do to explain to a Roman world that Jesus is Lord and God? Well, there was a man who had one answer at least. You know him as Mark. His full name was John Mark. He was present in Gethsemane, though not one of the disciples. 
And some years later, after having been mentored by Peter, he wrote a book, a record, an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You know it as the Gospel of Mark. Most of you have probably read it or at least parts of it and are familiar with Mark's work. Well, by tradition, and I think more than tradition as I'll show you, Mark is written to Rome. Mark is written to Rome about the time Nero was coronated as emperor, so they knew of an emperor that called himself God. It must have been a real issue among the Christians and the non-believers at that point. And his gospel cleverly addresses the reality of the fact that Caesar isn't Lord, but Jesus is. Let me show you how I think he did it. Another way that Caesar declared his deity was called a Roman triumph. Now, you've got to give me just a couple of moments to show you what a triumph was. A Roman triumph, a religious procession, a Roman triumph was rooted in Greek history. In the ancient Greek world, they had a god named Dionysus, the god of wine and orgy. My students call him the god of spring break, the god of wine and orgy. Dionysus was believed to die in the fall of the year when all the grape leaves fell off because he was the god of the grapevine. And then in the spring when the new blossoms came out, he was believed to come back to life. Now to reenact that dying, rising god, they had a religious procession. The high priest of the Dionysius cult would take the purple robe off the statue of the god put it on himself, and all the priests and others from the temple would parade through the city with drums and cymbals and other kinds of instruments as people lined the streets, and the people would chant, triumph, or in Greek, triumphe, 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 which means appear, appear, show yourself, declare yourself, show yourself. And somehow it was believed in the person of the high priest with the royal robe, Dionysus made his reappearance and will bless our fertility and our needs, answer whatever our needs are for the coming year. Now, the Romans took that practice and applied it to their god, Jupiter. But shortly before Jesus' death, maybe 25 years or so, It was taken by the emperors as their way of saying to the world, I am Lord and God. In fact, Nero, about the time the Gospel of Mark was written, passed a law that only the emperors were allowed to have triumphs. No one else, no other religious groups could use them. This was the official way to say Caesar is God. Now Mark must have known that. Certainly his Roman audience knew that, and we know Paul knew that because in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about a triumph. Let me show you how a triumph was carried out. It followed a fairly precise pattern. That's how the Romans were. It started with the Praetorian Guard, the Marines, if you will, the best the Roman had in terms of foot soldiers at least, gathering in what was called the Praetorium. This is a model of what it looked like. I'm sorry, a modern reconstruction of what it looked like. Some think it looked like this, though that's a modern building in Rome. You've seen it if you've been there. 
the entire Praetorian Guard would gather, 6,000 of their best soldiers, polished brass breastplates glinting in the sun. They would stand at attention. Those helmets that were polished with the red Roman crest, the very best. And as they stood there at attention, the emperor would make his appearance. The emperor-to-be would make his appearance. Officials would go to the temple of Jupiter, step two, and take the purple robe off of Jupiter and put it on this emperor who would be declared Lord and God. They would take the wreath that the statue wore, usually a wreath of gold leaves that said, this is a divine one, and they would put that golden wreath on the head of the emperor who would have his triumph. And there he stood, purple robe, and wreath in front of these assembled soldiers. The third step was the troops would acclaim him Lord and God. And at least one occasion, 6,000 of them stood for a couple of hours. They drew their swords and they thumped them against their brass breastplates in rhythm. Hail, Caesar, Lord and God. Hail, Caesar, Lord and God. And Caesar had now been declared Lord and God by the military unit that answered directly to him. Step four, the parade. The city of Rome had a main street called Via Sacra that ran from the Campus Martius where the Praetorium was all the way to Jupiter's temple on the hill. And a procession would be formed. In front would be the emperor. Somewhere just behind him, some soldiers leading a sacrificial bull. Next to the bull would be a soldier carrying the instrument of death that would slay the bull when it came time for sacrifice. Million Roman citizens would line the street wanting to catch a glimpse of the emperor and cheer him on as our Lord and our God. On both sides of the street as the procession passed were incense altars every 20 or 30 feet or so with incense burning on the altar. So the whole city had this incredible smell of the spices reminding the Romans that our leader is divine Caesar. He's our Lord and he's our God. And in the middle, the sacrificial bull and a soldier walking with an axe, the instrument of death that would kill the bull when it came to the moment of sacrifice. They passed through the city on Via Sacra until they came to Capitoline Hill. Capit in Latin means head. Head Hill was the place where the Temple of Jupiter was built. It's gone today, most of it at least. Looked something like this one. When they excavated for the footings of that temple, they had found, so mythology goes, an intact human head, hair, eyes, skin, hundreds of years old, which they determined to be Romulus, the founder of Rome. And so the hill became known as Head Hill. And the procession would come to Head Hill with the plaza, the forum, lined with tens of thousands of cheering people. The emperor has arrived. 
when he got to the foot of Head Hill, he would be offered wine mixed with myrrh. But he wouldn't drink it. Hmm. We're not sure why. There are suggestions, but no one knows for sure. The record, at least as far as I can tell, doesn't say. But the people who read the Gospel of Mark, if they had seen the triumph, had watched an emperor refuse wine mixed with myrrh. Then the bull was sacrificed, stunned with the blunt end of the axe, cut into pieces, and at least some of the flesh and the blood put on the altar that stood nearby. The gods were now invited to join the ceremony to determine, to declare that our emperor is Lord and God. The emperor would climb the stairs of the temple The tradition was to put his main assistants, his attendants, one on his right, one on his left. Octavian has his high priest and the commander of his army. Domitian will have his two sons, Titus and, sorry, Vespasian will have his two sons, Titus and Domitian. And they climb the stairs and stand elevated above the crowd. As Caesar stood there, The tradition was to bring prisoners, line them up, bound in front of that temple, and Caesar would walk at the top of the stairs and simply point and say, you die, and you die, and you die. And as he declared the death, a soldier would step out from behind and cut the throat of the unfortunate one that had been singled out to die. I hold the power of life and of death. Watch me. Caesar declared. And then, as the crowd stood, they would acclaim him for hours as he stood with the wreath and the robe. Hail Caesar, Lord and God! Hail Caesar, Lord and God! And they stood and waited for a sign from the gods. As they stood for Caesar Augustus's triumph, a comet appeared, visible at noon it was so bright, and could be seen in the sky of Rome for six days in a row. Now either Octavian Augustus Caesar was the luckiest hog that ever rooted for an acorn, Or somebody knew something. But to them, Jupiter had declared, Yes, this is my son. He is divine Lord and your king. And Caesar was now officially Lord and God. So imagine we gather on the Lord's Day. By the way, Lord's Day was an official holiday in Rome, but Lord didn't mean Jesus. It's Caesar's Day. 
how are we going to answer this, that Jesus was crucified? And then someone knocks on the door, and it's an emissary. And he has a scroll from John Mark. We anxiously unroll it as one of the elders steps in front of the community and begins to read Mark's account. Starting at the beginning where Jesus is born, Lord and Son of God, not Caesar. But we soon find ourselves skipping over the rest and getting to the part of the crucifixion because we want to find out how does Mark explain the crucifixion. Mark chooses an interesting set of details in an interesting order because Mark's order of the crucifixion and his details follow the outline of a triumph. Come with me. The Roman triumph started with the Praetorian guard gathering in the Praetorium. Mark begins his account by saying, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and the whole cohort gathered. The Roman account continues, they bring a purple robe and put a wreath on his head. And Mark says, when they got Jesus in the praetorium, they put a purple robe on him and twisted together, and we say crown, but the Greek is literally, they twisted together a wreath of thorns and put it on his head. A mockery, no doubt, and yet, in some eternal sense, the truth. Then the Roman praetorians would acclaim, Hail Caesar, Lord and God! And as Jesus stood there with his robe and his wreath, the soldiers began to call out, Hail King of the Jews! A blasphemous parody, and yet unknowingly declaring God's truth. Personally, I think those soldiers knew exactly what they were doing. They were mocking Jesus by pretending to give him a bizarre triumph. And in so doing, his walk to the cross becomes God's way of saying, this was not a defeat. This was not a weakness. This is not something we're embarrassed about. This is how Jesus became Lord and God of all. Then the Roman emperor would be processed through the streets, someone next to him carrying the instrument of death, and the soldiers led Jesus to a place called Golgotha. And as they did, a certain man from Cyrene named Simon, father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by, and they forced him to carry the instrument of death. Alexander and Rufus? That is a weird detail to put in the story at that moment. Nobody else's kids are mentioned. Read the last chapter of Romans. Paul says, give my greetings to Alexander and Rufus who are in your house church. If you don't believe this account, Mark is saying, ask Alex or Ruth. It was their dad who carried the cross. Ask him. They came to Head Hill, 
And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the head or the place of the skull. When Caesar got there, when Caesar got there, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, which he poured out. And Mark writes, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he refused it. Did you know Jesus was offered wine before he got on the cross? Why does Mark mention that detail and others don't? I wonder why I need to know that. Then the bull was sacrificed for the emperor, and Mark simply says, and they crucified him, this Lamb of God. And then Caesar climbed the steps, someone on his right, someone on his left. Prisoners were brought, some were condemned to die. The text says they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And as Jesus hung there, he turned to the one on the right and he said, Live! Today you will be with me forever in paradise. Eternal life. Something no Caesar will ever grant. And then the crowd would acclaim, Hail Caesar! And Jesus says the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him, Let this Messiah, this Lord, this King of Israel. And as a blasphemous parody, they declare to the world that Jesus is King and Lord and God. And then we wait for a sign from the gods. Mark writes, at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. An earthquake shook, and holy people were raised from the dead. And God said, are you watching? This man is my son! He is Lord, and he alone is God. And just in case... We Romans missed the point. Mark adds another detail that the others don't. He writes, Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And then he says, When the centurion who was standing there heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God, a Roman Marine. And I don't think the emphasis was on surely this man, or surely this man, 
Nor was the emphasis, surely this man is, or surely this man is the Son of God. I think the emphasis is on, surely, this man, not the commander whose name is on my helmet and whose name is on my breastplate and whose name is on the sheath of my sword. This man is Lord and God. I don't know how he explained it to his commander. But that's one brave Marine. The devil came to two men, in a way, and said, bow down to me, and I'll give you the whole world. One man said, gladly, and he bowed down, and God gave him the whole known world. Sorry, the devil gave him the whole known world. The other said, it is written, get lost. One took his kingdom by butchering everybody who got in the way, by taking everything he could get his hands on, by crushing everyone in every way he knew, by refusing in any way to give anyone anything because he wanted to be on top of the pile. The other took his kingdom by giving away everything he had to anyone who wanted, including his very life. I think the Roman Christians realized Mark was saying two things. If Jesus walked to the cross is a coronation, a triumph, we have to decide who is our king. If we live the way Caesar did and use others for our benefit, take everything we can, hold on to everything we can, refuse to share with anyone who has a need, then we are in Caesar's procession. And we live for me no matter what it costs you. And if we decide to live sacrificially, giving of our time, our abilities, and even our resources to those who have a need, whether they are family members or total strangers, then we take the other king. And I ask you today, as God is asking me, who, which procession, who is your Lord. Do you live like Caesar? Do you live like Jesus? The other implication, Paul says much more clearly, because Paul talks about a triumph. Are you ready for this? Say it after me. Thanks be to God who continually leads us in Christ's triumph. He knows about Jesus' triumph. And guess what? You're in it! 
You are the crowd that by your words and by the way you live declares to our world, Jesus is Lord and God. Watch me. And if you don't think God is serious about that, continue with me, after me, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ. You are the incense altars of the triumph. If I live next door to you, I ought to find myself every once in a while when the window is open going, God, it smells like Jesus around here. Because to God, you are supposed to be what Jesus smells like. And so the Holy Week isn't a moment of God's weakness. Holy Week is God saying, there's a greater power than Caesar ever dreamed of. It's the power of my son sacrificing himself for you. And if you will claim that power and join and join, excuse me, that procession and live sacrificially, the world will change. And that's why I need to know that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me a moment. Thank you. Father in heaven, we would join your triumphal procession. We would be the smell of Jesus to our neighbors, our family members, our fellow workers, our employees, and even total strangers. Give us the strength that Jesus had to go to the cross. May others discover the power of his sacrificial life through us. In the name of the Messiah, amen. Go with God's grace. Amen.